0: Welcome to The Travelling Senorita, episode 192. I am on that road trip I was talking about last week in country Queensland. Before I leave the island of Australia, I always like to do some really authentic storytelling in the country that I am born. And in particular, I love it when I find winemakers and original stories behind making really good wine. So today I found myself in Ballandine. There's much ado about Ballandine at the moment and in the Granite Belt. And it's an area where wine is being made really well and with using quite unique techniques from age old practices. And one of those is Bed Road Winery. I'm lucky enough to have found this drop uh, when I was eating at Rickshaw in Burleigh Burley Beach. And I said, come on, Queensland, really? This isn't a Queensland wine. And then I progressed to ring that winemaker because I was in so, interested in in the process of making that wine but also the taste was remarkable and I was sort of saying come on this can't be a a sunny Queensland wine so I've tracked down that winemaker today and I'm with Glenn Robert who is from Bent Road Winery and is a scientist slashed winemaker
1: Hello. Hello.
0: Did I get all that right?
1: I think you did get that all right. <laughs> well done. That was that was very good, seamless.
0: Thank you. I was visualising the first time I, I tasted a drop of your wine. Le Le Petite.
1: La Petit More.
0: That one is just incredible. The label, I'm visual, the label got me first. I loved yeah. it. I thought it was super funky. And then I tasted the wine and the wine was super funky in a very good way.
1: So you know what La Petit More means? Well, okay. it literally means the small death. But in actual fact, it's a French euphemism which was coined during the 1700s. And it describes that feeling just post orgasm.
0: (laughs) So that's what happened to me on the beach that day. There you go.
1: There you go. (laughs) Which,
0: well, it made me ring you, it made me track down your phone number and stalk you. Now, that's got to be over a decade ago because you've been going for a couple of decades now. Yep. But before we talk about where we're sitting today, which is in this. Gorgeous church out in Ballandine. Let's talk about Glenn growing up um, in and around Brisbane and how he went from a scientist into a winemaker, or do those two things meet?
1: Ah, well, yes, indeed. I did grow up in Brisbane and on the Gold Coast. Um, but I was actually born in a small town called Ipswich, which is just outside Switch. the Switch, which is just <laughs> outside uh, Brisbane, Struggle Town, Queensland. <laughs> I and I thought um, you'd have some stories
0: there. Well,
1: I've, I always say how I come from a family where I'm the only true Aussie. I'm the only person that was born in Australia. Uh, my mother was born in Surabaya, in what is now Indonesia, but what was then uh, the Dutch East Indies. My father was born in The Hague in the Netherlands. Wow. My sister was born in Amsterdam. My other sister, my younger sister, was born in uh, what is now Jayapura in West Irian. And I was born in the Switch. <laughs> so I'm. are you
0: the most exotic out of oh, all of them? Oh,
1: absolutely. <laughs> Isn't that ironic? Absolutely.
0: <laughs> so, when you moved to Brisbane Town, um, what were you aspiring to be as a young man in the city?
1: <laughs> moved to Brisbane Town. We, uh, uh, we moved to Brisbane when I was three. So, for all intents and purposes, I, I grew up yeah. in Brisbane. Yeah. Um, I was aspiring to be a happy person, That's I suppose. That's a really
0: good answer. Yeah. And I, I mean, obviously, as a young man um, growing up in Brisbane, which was back then a big country town per se, um, it's changed a lot now, as, as, you, as you would know more than anyone. But when you were thinking of going to school or leaving the town or what sort of things were, were going through your mind?
1: Um, I think for me, um, science was always an interesting uh, path. To take, you know, I had really good teachers that um, that instilled a love of science in me, and so I went to university, did a bachelor of science degree, uh, majoring in biochemistry and in genetics, and I spent, I want to say, about 12 years of my life being a medical research scientist and really loving it. However, um, I decided I had to leave, you know, I was working in an institute called the um, Queensland Institute for Medical Research, an amazing place to work. Uh, um, it was a great honour to work in that institute. It's one of the leading medical institutes in Australia, let alone the world. and. I was getting to be the world's oldest research assistant. And it's like, <laughs> oh, Glenn, when are you going to do your PhD? It's like, oh, never. Yeah, yeah. And um, I was noticing that a lot of younger people were coming up the ranks, taking up the um, opportunity to do their PhDs and go further. And I really didn't have that passion to study further or study um, it's difficult quite academic
0: things. Academic at that stage, isn't it really? Yeah,
1: and so that's one of the reasons why I left, and um, I went along aimlessly, thinking, "What am I going to do?"
0: Yes, so that's where the best ideas come from. Yeah. So <laughs> then you drove out to this region, or how did this all come about?
1: Well, I have a um, partner who we've been together now for many years. And we met at university, he and I, Robert and I. And uh, he at the time had a property development business and he decided he wanted to do a project uh, in the countryside. And uh, I didn't think that it was a great idea. Mm. And uh, he said, oh, look, you know, I." spent a lot of my youth in the country and it was really fun he had a um, he had a a history of being in the country and so i humored him i said oh look okay well we'll go and and have a look at properties in the countryside and um, never thinking that we would move from the city to the country and fortunate Fortunately we started looking at property during the millennial drought and so the countryside Mm. was at its worst and uh, when you go out to the country and the country is in drought, Mm. uh, you know we are animals, we're human beings, we're we're 70% water Mm. and I, I speak for myself when I look at. A country in drought and it makes me anxious mm. it's like um, I don't want to see dying plants or dying animals mm. it's 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 a sad place to be mm. so when we started looking for property during the millennial drought um, I was very happy that we're not going to find any place that's going to be suitable for us and my main criteria was that You're not going to get me to move unless we have a property with water. And so for two years, we searched and searched and searched for a property. And we went from one property, one drought stricken property to the next drought stricken property. And this was a two year journey. And I was very happy because I thought, well, we're never going to find anything. We're going to remain. In the city, we're going to be we're going to remain close to the beach until two years after searching, and this was in the year 2020. Uh, we were advised by the uh, real estate agent that we were dealing with. They said, "Oh, there's a property for sale on the river. You should go and have a look. Um, it's not really for sale. It's a part of a larger property and." The owner is thinking of carving a small amount of land off uh, um, to raise some money. So we went to have a look at this property, this property that we're at now at 535 Bents Road. And I was very happy. The, the property looked like it was in typical drought. It um, looked pretty, sad and miserable. Because
0: where is the water?
1: So the water, we're we're situated here in our church. Um, The water is about 400 metres that away. And so we took a small dirt track down to the river. We got to the river and uh, we got to what is basically our lake. There's a 30-megaliter lake just down the road. We have a weir, we have a little dam wall, which dams the Severn River, where this property is on the Severn River. And uh, we have one of the most permanent water reserves in the area, and it is beautiful down there. It's our little secret. Can you swim in it? We swim in it, we have amazing fish in it, we kayak in it. It's our own uh, little part of Girouin National Park. If, if people um, have visited Girouin and seen how beautiful it is, we have a little piece of well, that type of landscape down there. That real estate agent there.
0: knew his thing, right? So, <laughs> he knew what you are after. So we got
1: down there, we saw all the water and we saw how beautiful it was down there. I begrudgingly looked at Robert and I said, I think we have to buy this place and it was basically love at first sight.
0: How many acres
1: are you? So we're on 100 acres, so 40 hectares. So there's only eight acres under vine. And one of the reasons why the original farmer wanted to sell this block of land is because it's not really suitable for the grazing or the planting that he wanted to do. There's a lot of, we're in the granite belt, and there's a lot of rock and there's a lot of granite boulders mm. and uh, there's very little land in, in, on this 100 acre property that's um, able to be farmed. Mm. And so he decided that this land was not valuable for him. And hence the reason why he sold it.
0: But were you guys thinking as like a, a build a house and have a hobby here on the weekends, or did that just evolve the business idea?
1: So we first had the idea of building some sort of touristic enterprise.
0: A couple of alpacas. <laughs> yeah, a couple. Yeah, well,
1: you know, we, we were open to any suggestion. So open that that Robert t- decided hey look you've got a science degree why didn't you go and learn how to make wine and it's like so you're sending me back to university to learn how to make it's wine a fun
0: one down the road wasn't it? Is it didn't you just go to the viticulture one at Sandthorpe? You no actually, no no oh, no. oh radio okay
1: and and so it's like you're sending me back to university to learn how to make wine and he goes yeah it'll be fun it's your, like,
0: your initial thoughts? Are uh, you kidding me? Thoughts, and,
1: emotions? And I'm, my original thoughts were, are you kidding me? Wow. I enrolled and loved it. So I went and did my... Begrudgingly. Begrudgingly. I went and did my winemaking and enology degree at Charles Sturt University wow, okay. at the camp, at the Wagga Wagga campus. So
0: you did another three
1: years? So I, I did another four and a half years part time.
0: Wow. Did you have to
1: go down to Wagga? Yeah, I did. Mm-hmm. I did. But the great thing about Wagga, and it's and it's it was a great uh, uh, degree to do yeah. because uh, it was a degree that was offered to people part time, and so most of the people that were enrolled were working in the industry. So mm-hmm. we made I made a lot of mm-hmm. industry contacts, mm-hmm. but not only that. Um, it helped me to make contacts overseas and helped me to work overseas mm. as well.
0: So, would you have said that you? I mean, wine connoisseur is a strong, strong label. But would you have said that you li- like liked and new wine back then?
1: We loved drinking, and that was <laughs> that was about it. That's where it starts. And so, you know, that's the thing. You know, people people um, um, might look at me and go oh you know you're a wine expert you know and it's like it's all smoke and mirrors mm, I just, it's words, all smoke and mirrors those, why, because those, you learn all of those that
0: those words like expert I said connoisseur gurus all those things are, are really interesting because it's not something that just happens upon you like you went overseas and you learn and you study yeah. and, and uh, trial and error I imagine absolutely and so when you said you went overseas after you'd finished your um, degree where did you sort of source where were regions that were inspiring you
1: So while I was doing my degree, I was fortunate enough to to do a vintage in California, in Napa. And that was a whole lot of fun because it uh, gave me an insight to the wine industry in the United States. Mm -hmm. I was there for six months and had an absolute ball. But while I was studying, I also worked at quite a few wineries in Australia as well to get... More hands-on experience rather than book learning experience, mm. and this was the great opportunity of doing the degree uh, um, part-time and doing it distance mm. education-wise. That you could take the opportunity to do a lot of practical work, mm. uh, work in the industry while you're doing your degree.
0: Any particular ones there that really, uh, I guess, were mentors or in, in, you know the inspiration behind you now?
1: I had a great time, particularly working at a winery called Cloverly Estate Mm. in the South Burnett, yet again another Queensland winery. Mm. And I was fortunate enough to work with the then winemaker, Luke Fitzpatrick, and he was a great mentor for me. He's a man that's much younger than me and, um, and he taught me so much Uh, about winemaking but then there are many people through my journey that have been mentors and I think it's a matter of always being open Mm. and and listening to people
0: and then developing your own style from that absolutely obviously Robert had a sixth sense of something going on here like he knew what you were made of and he knew that I mean one of those you strike me someone with one of those brains that can absorb a lot of information scientifically but you have a creative edge to you as well so when you decided to go with bentwood wines you then looked at a a georgian style of winemaking um i'm not going to do it justice so please it's it's a style that i love drinking and I, i do love an orange wine and i love stalks and all there was a point actually uh mutual friend of ours, um, Lee Dorf, who owned restaurants uh, in Castellina, he's probably my wine guy to go to, one of them, he led me down the path that I was literally drinking dirt, (laughs) that I had to pull myself back, because we were just getting more and more pungent as we went, Mm -hmm. to the point that I couldn't have my nice Pinot Grigio anymore, so I had to come back somewhere, so obviously my palate really resonates with that organic earthy vibe you know the stronger the blue cheese the stronger the orange wine the better it is for me i mean not everybody has that so is that something that you um yourself like in wine or what made you go down that path and please explain what that path is Mm
1: -hmm. i suppose we in australia we're spoiled for choice yes in the way that there are so many amazing wines that are available, so many amazing wine makers, so many amazing regions in Australia that make amazing wine. So as a person making wine, but importantly as a person selling wine, how are you going to differentiate yourself from others? And so as well with my scientific background, And with my research background, I like to instill a lot of experimentation and research when it comes to working in the winery. So, when it comes to science and when it comes to how the hell are we going to sell wines, we looked at the new fad of natural winemaking in the um in the 20 teens
0: it was very it was very Australian like having when you were traveling like sorry not traditional Australia so Tasmania at the time when I was going down this path myself was going oh no no we're traditional so it was quite a innovative Australian thing wasn't it that was coming out of the market
1: I think so because you know Australia's are great innovators Mm. and adapters Mm. of Different cultures, mm. and this is a consequence, I think, of our multicultural, multiracial society. Mm. You know, we're open; we tend to be open mm. to everything. You know, we
0: don't talk enough about that actually these days. But yes, keep going down this path. I like this.
1: So, when it came to uh, um, deciding how are we going to stand apart from other wineries, how are we going to be able to sell our wines? once we've sold them, or once we've made them, um, we thought we would experiment with this natural wine phenomena and um, see if we could clean it up a bit. You know, with my background in um, in science, we, we have a laboratory uh, in the winery where I am capable of doing many, many
0: Mad scientist things. Mad scientist things. And
1: and I'm capable of um, being able to quality control a lot of our all of our ferments. So when it comes to making wine, people don't realise that humans have been making wine for the past eight, eight and a half thousand years. And the first winemakers in the world um, are the ancient Georgians. And I'm not talking about Georgia and the United States. Like, can
0: you Because most people jump there. But can you uh, geographically put us into the picture there?
1: So I'm talking about the former Soviet Republic of mm. Georgia. And so if you look at Georgia, uh, uh, it's the indigenous home for the species Vin- uh, Vitis vinifera. And Vitis vinifera are the species of grapevines that we know today as the wine grapes okay. right yeah. so they their indigenous home are on the foothills of the Caucasus Mountains so the Caucasus Mountains are the highest mountains in Europe they range up to an altitude of 5500 meters That's approximately claim
0: the highest mountains in Europe
1: yeah wow. and so when you look at where Georgia is think of Georgia as a rectangle and um, think of Georgia as a, um, an isolated country, and it's shaped like a rectangle. To the north of Georgia are the Great Caucasus Mountains, um, and that's separating Georgia from Mother Russia. To the east of Georgia is the Caspian Sea. To the south of Georgia are the Lower Caucasus Mountains, separating And the lower Caucasus Mountains are at an altitude of about 3,300 metres. And that's separating Georgia from places like Turkey, Iraq, the whole Mesopotamia area. Mm -hmm. And then to the west of Georgia is the Black Sea. So Georgia is a very isolated country. And so it has a lot of biodiversity. So when it comes to... Uh, grape varieties out of the 1300 different grape varieties that winemakers use to make wine about 420 of those varieties are indigenous of Georgia alone and these these varieties are like the wild funky varieties Mm. you know you consider say for example the noble varieties of Europe and so the noble varieties of Europe are like Chardonnay, Pinot Noir, um, Cabernet, Riesling, mm. all, the, all the great, great varieties that we all know and that we all love and that we can rattle off in our heads, mm. you know, because we've been to Dan Murphy's or to wherever <laughs> yeah, yeah. thousands of thousands of times, right? Did
0: someone the, mention Moselle? <laughs> well, <laughs> um,
1: Riesling, which is from Moselle. Yeah. Um, so, when you look at those noble varieties, those noble varieties developed as a consequence of uh, selective breeding. From so,
0: the Georgian
1: vines? Yeah, exactly. Well, that, that's, that's where, where vines originally came from. They originally came from Georgia and, and from the other side of the Caucasus Mountains, from Russia, from, from the foothills of the, the Caucasus Mountains.
0: And you
1: said some eight thousand years ago. So eight, eight and a half thousand years ago, and this this is proven by you know archaeologists and carbon dating. Yeah. So when you consider, when you compare the difference between the noble varieties and the Georgian varieties, the noble varieties are a consequence of hundreds of years of selective breeding. It's like think of the monks in in burgundy because the monks were generally the custodians of the vineyards in france for example right because they were making wine for the sacrament yes we're in a church now <laughs> talking about the sacrament
0: which is why wine's okay right that, exactly wiped out. <laughs> exactly
1: you know so so consider the the monk in burgundy in the year 10000 overlooking their their vineyard and they'll look at their vineyard and they'll go, oh, hey, that vine is growing really well, and that vine is growing really well. Let's take cuttings of those vines and we'll plant a vineyard. And this is how they selectively bred. Cuttings from from vines that are growing really well in their region, in their terroir. And so hence the reason why with Selective breeding and then mutation Mm. varieties such as Chardonnay, Mm. Pinot Noir, Mm. Sauvignon Blanc, uh, Riesling, this is how these these varieties were selected, mutated and formed their own style, Mm. right? So And And that's to
0: do with terroir, as you said, but it's also uh, climate and each variety thrives in different climatic conditions. And
1: thriving in their terroir, in their conditions. Yes. And so this is how the noble varieties developed. Yes. How they genetically developed. When you compare the noble varieties to the Georgian varieties and out of the 1,300 different varieties that, that... winemakers use to make wine 520 are indigenous of Georgia alone right so over a third the noble varieties are like the dachshunds Mm. and the poodles and the pomeranians Mm. of the wine world Mm. because they've been selectively bred Mm. to to suit their area to suit uh Mm. people's taste
0: and let's face it mass production
1: well yeah we but we, love, but we love those wines, right? Correct. But then you look at... Sorry, the, I,
0: mass consumption.
1: But then you look at those...
0: <laughs> we know
1: them. We, exactly. You look at those noble varieties and you compare them to the original varieties, the indigenous varieties of Georgia, and the, indig- the indigenous varieties are like the wolves and the foxes. That's what I like of of the wine world. <laughs>
0: That's why I
1: like them. You know, like we I we had the great honour, opportunity and pleasure of visiting Georgia in 2022. And we went to one vineyard there that had its own grapevine. Wow. it, it it's the uh, it was the only vineyard in the world that grew that one vine wow. variety. <laughs> <laughs> so, the, so yeah, so this is really interesting, you know, like, and this is the great this thing about.
0: This is the it. crux, sorry to interrupt you, but this is the crux to me of. Uh, you say the indigenous. It's the indigenous crux of winemaking, right? Of like, not just having. It's the wine, crucible
1: of winemaking. It, That's what
0: I'm trying to say. And, and let's just go there now with what you've got. Um, we just took a photograph of how you're making your wine from
1: the Georgian style over the Paddock us. Yeah, so, so we, after considering the culture, the ancient culture of how the Georgians make wine, you know, human beings have been making wine for the past eight, eight and a half thousand years. It's not rocket science, right?
0: It is, it is for your brain. <laughs> no, so. so I know what you're saying. Think
1: of think of comparing winemaking to cooking, right? Mm. Um, the, or
0: bread uh, making, or beer well, making. Say for
1: example, you know, a person a person can make a delicious meal for their family, and um, and it would be very satisfying, very delicious. But can that same person run a restaurant? And can that same person produce that delicious food um, to scale it up to a restaurant sort of situation. And this is very similar to winemaking. Winemaking is not rocket science. Anyone can make wine, um, but can they make wine in a consistent fashion?
0: Probably not, which is why you're doing it, and I'm not, and I'm drinking it. But I do love the wine you're making. And we just had a look at the Cuevri, have I got that right? Yep, Cuevri. Cuevri. So, so so you, I believe, and I'm, I'm, I think you will agree with me here, you were one of the first in Australia to be using this technique, Yes, which, so, which do, is derived from the Georgian winemaking 8,500 years ago.
1: Exactly. So Cuevri's are vessels you know so they're wine making vessels Ceramic vessels. so they are uh, terracotta yep. basically terracotta pots so the Georgians call them kvairvries the Greeks would call them pithos oh, yeah, the yeah, yeah. Uh, Romans would call them amphoras okay but it was the Georgians that uh, were the original users of these vessels to make wine
0: and would they hand make these vessels? And they
1: are still handmade today.
0: They're very stunning, aren't they?
1: They are, they are, are very, very organic them? and they're them. very stunning. Mm-hmm. And uh, um, they look uh, when when they were uh, when they were delivered originally onto the property. Uh, we had them on their sides, and um, they have points on the on the on their bottoms. So, the base of the queries are, I think, spun. Oh, yeah. a, a small amount is spun, and then um, the, the, the majority of the kweaverie, I wanna say 95, 99% of the rest of the structure of the, the kweaverie is made by hand, by coil? hand, by coil yeah. uh, 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 pottery techniques. Wow when they were first delivered they came to the winery and they were on their sides and they looked like big sweet potatoes wow. but they also looked like big boobs they were just so I was beautiful say boobs before you said they were they were <laughs> they were very sexy looking uh, uh, uh vessels. Well, they were about
0: to birth some of the best wines in the country yeah so, so in reference to that it's stalks and all talk to me about how what how was that your first batch i guess that you were experimenting with so
1: when just backing it up a bit when i say that winemaking is not rocket science uh, and humans have been doing this for the past eight and a half thousand years we try and channel the ancient georgians we basically put Um, whole grapes into these vessels and we let nature takes take its course. We generally have all of our Kvavri wines uh, ferment wild, so with indigenous yeast, and basically we let the wine make itself. So for me as a winemaker, um, I'm constantly monitoring the microbiological stability of the ferment. That's my, that's my job, you know. Um, that's a,
0: that's a day, daily, daily, I mean are you harvesting at the moment? Are you fermenting at the moment? Yes,
1: so that's a three times a day thing.
0: As in don't take your, your eye off the ball kind of
1: job. Yeah. Yeah, so, so ideally I'm just going to be like the ancient people of Georgia and do nothing. <laughs> but if something if something goes wrong, then I step in as a classically trained scientific winemaker and ameliorate what's going wrong.
0: What, what I immediately think of then is the simplicity, and this is the rocket science comment, right? So back then, when everything was a lot simpler, mm-hmm. and they were building these vats themselves, mm-hmm. and they were throwing it in stalks and all, and you're saying kicking back and doing nothing, but obviously, you know... didn't have the degree they didn't have any of that but they were watching and tasting and feeling this process so it strikes me is that what that's what you're doing uh, channeling that and if something because you are producing a lot of bottles of wines in fantastic restaurants and bottle shops and what have you so you do have to be across you know the quality of that but I guess um, is that how you fell in love with winemaking because of that way that style of winemaking
1: well, the great thing, well, I like to think that winemaking is a really beautiful blend of science and, and art, creativity.
0: I think your brain is a beautiful blend of science. <laughs> oh, thanks. Well, Not Nobody can do that. It's a bit ambidextrous, isn't it, that you could flip between both? <laughs> well, Or do you see math as art?
1: <laughs> oh, look, I love doing maths. I love it. Stupid, isn't it? <laughs> no. As I get older, I like, I really, really <laughs> like numbers. Um, so, uh, a lot of people don't realize that there is. Oh, so, I'll back it up. Uh, the quaveries are planted in the earth, yes. outside, in, uh, in the elements. And the quaveries are situated about, I want to say, Uh, 25 meters away from the winery. The crevres are planted in the ground between two vineyards and so I like to say that this is true terroir. This is this is the vessels actually sitting in the earth of the granite belt Queensland and we're using the grapes that are grown in the earth and we're putting the grapes back into the earth in these vessels mm. and they're being fermented.
0: And it tastes good.
1: So, when it comes to... it could taste shit. It but could it taste shit. good. <laughs> so, when it comes to um, making wine in, during the ancient days, a lot of people don't realise that there is no known human pathogen that exists in wine. So, wine will never kill you. Unless you drink too much. Okay, yeah. And the reason why (laughs) why, um, uh, wine is like that is because wine has a harsh environment. It has, it's quite high in alcohol. It's quite high in acidity. So therefore it has a low pH. And that environment is very, very harsh for all human pathogens. So wine will never kill you. There are many microorganisms that do grow in wine and that will spoil your wine and will make your wine into vinegar or something even yes. more hideous than yes. vinegar, yes. right? Yes. Things like um, acetic acid bacteria, Brettanomyces, enococcasinus, there are many, many uh, um, microorganisms that will grow in wine and will turn your wine into for want of a better term, vinegar. You'll take a sip of that wine, you'll spit it out and you go, yuck, that's horrible, right? But that sip won't kill you. You take a sip of of contaminated water, you could get Ebola, you could get cholera, you could get so many diseases. You take a sip of contaminated milk, Mm. you could get listeria, you could get so many diseases. A sip
0: of contaminated wine will not kill you. Uh,
1: Exactly. And so when we make our wine out in the elements, out in the open, we're not going to risk people from dying.
0: Well, I have full faith in you, (laughs) because firstly we're in a church, and secondly I've tasted your wines and I've stalked you down to find who the winemaker was. So as we wrap up here, thank you for that style and your passion, and your science behind that is incredible. What, what are you, where are you now? Like you a couple of decades down the road at Bent Road, like that. And I mean, how many varieties do you have? And like you're employing, you know, a plethora of people and you've made an industry <laughs> out of it for yourself. A,
1: a plethora of people. Um, we, <laughs> we hire three people. <laughs> That's a plethora. Yeah,
0: well it's a full, yeah. more than two, so yes.
1: Um, uh, where are we at now? Uh, we... Actually,
0: I'll just re- rewind. There. You're in a plethora of places, is what I meant to say. Like you are known out there in the marketplace. You're in some of the best restaurants that I've been to. You're in bottle shops, like boutique and bottle shops that I love. Um, that's you know you've really made a name for yourself in the industry. So yeah. where is where is it now, and how many varieties do you have? In New York, Steve? Oh
1: God, um, I I can't remember how many wines types of wines we, we make it would take me a little while to sort of like yeah right but what are um, we talking like 12 yeah at least wow, okay. but we also do a little bit of contract wine making as well oh, so and you say gin and we also make gin too Whoa. and and we also make um, cane spirit and we're about to go into hopefully whiskey eventually
0: and see i love the reason the story of of you glenn i've been trying to capture it for about my podcast has been going for five years and you're one of the first on my list so it's really um, an honor to be here today to get your story because i knew that you were doing something really uh historical funky a long way back before anyone else i mean we're seeing a lot of orange wines out there now a lot of natural wines out there i said to you before so so much so that I need to come back a little bit to the traditional varieties that I, I'm attuned to, like Albariños and, you know, the um, Italian Grigios and things like that. But I still love that natural wine, and my body does. Um, I think you are one of the uh, instigators um, and creators of that in Australia, and I just wanted to thank you for that from my palate to yours. Oh, thank you. <laughs> I mean that, I mean that. And we're about to go and taste some wines. Absolutely. Down the road. Um, actually, a question before we leave you. Galandine as a region, how are you seeing that progress? I mean, there's been a lot more wineries pop up since you guys bought that beautiful block of land with the river running through
1: it. Um, I think it's a great place to be in now. Uh, Brisbane, the Gold Coast, the Sunshine Coast, thanks to COVID, actually, mm. and thanks to state closures, mm, there was our, some gold there. we were rediscovered mm. by um, our coastal brethren Mm. and you know being on the being on the outskirts of a population that's like about four million people Mm. uh, we've now been rediscovered as as a destination to come to so I think Mm. Ballandine itself has a great future As well, I think a lot of young people are moving not only into the area but also into the industry Mm. here Mm. in Ballandine. We have two young aspiring winemakers working with us, Kyle and John, Mm. and um, we try and mentor them and (laughs) and nurture them. I've got five employees then,
0: yeah. (laughs) And, and,
1: you know... uh, I think mm. they're going to be in the industry forever. Mm. I think they've found their passion. Do they
0: like your clivvy, clivvy technique
1: as well? Yeah, they love it, and yeah. and and they love they love um, the the culture of, of experimentation yeah. as well. You know, they're much younger than me. Yeah. They're a generation younger yeah, than great. me, yeah. and um, I think they're going. They're the they're the. Future of the wine industry here in Ballandine, and and there are a lot of young winemakers yeah. coming into the area.
0: Yeah, I met I met a couple. Uh, I met a couple on the at the event on Thursday. Also, you've got the um, the new brand of South, Southern Country Queensland's coming out. That's how I have arrived here today. Um, so they're working really hard on that brand, and you know, beyond the Granite Belt is also other places. We're out, we're heading out tomorrow to Lockyer Valley and to Wombah, so you get to meet your you know, your food producers, it all marries together with wine. So it can only be a good thing to wrap it all up together into southern uh, country Queensland. Absolutely. What do you think about that?
1: We, I love that.
0: Now, I really want a wine and something to eat, so I'm going. So thank you so much <laughs> for your time today, um, Glenn, and I, I hope to meet Robert down the track as well. Thank you so much. You're welcome. Adios.
1: Bye.